It was 3 a.m. this past week when suddenly my wife and I were awoken from a dead sleep to a crashing noise in our house. It literally sounded like someone came through the front door of our home forcefully. So awoken from a deep sleep, and then what came afterwards, you mean you hear something like that, and you're startled, and you're thinking someone's in your home, and then I heard something after that that sounded like a scurrying across our floor, exactly like a palm rat would sound if, if he was trapped trying to escape. There was a scurrying, there was a, a scuttering around, and so I had two choices between what action I should take as being the man of the home. I could reach for a weapon, right, for that first noise, somebody breaking into the house, but the the subsequent noise of a scurrying really made me reach for another weapon. And this other weapon was our correctly named and rightly named cat named Ninja. (laughs) So I'm literally in our our bedroom, and he happened to be laying on the bed, and I hear this noise in the other room. And uh, so I grabbed the cat, literally went to our bedroom door, opened it, the door, tossed him out, and I'm like, get it, go get it, whatever it is. And the cat turned and, and looked at me like, that is not a palm rat, you are out of your mind. And so he, he just stayed there looking at me, and he has a track record of, of getting any type of critter that's in our house, you know, and so... I thought for sure that would work, and it didn't. And so now I have to go explore the house and find what this noise is. And it comes to find out that the initial loud popping was our tiles in our living room floor, where they're supposed to be. It really turned into a mountain range. The two tiles, like tectonic plates, cracked and popped up, and there was tiles from the beginning of our living room, about six rows down, all cracked in a line, And that was the initial pop, and the scurrying noise was the tile continuing to move and shift. And so, at 3 a.m., I'm going to go back to bed, but I am laying in bed, and I can hear this noise of creaking and popping really doesn't help with trying to go back to sleep, because I'm thinking every little creaking noise is more work that I have to do. Every little pop is more effort tearing up tile. And I tell us that story because at that moment, I'm vulnerable in my weakest moment. I'm thinking, I have a lot to do. I have a sermon to prepare. I have to preach this week. I have meetings. My wife is thinking, I'm pregnant. I'm about to have another baby. I'm just trying to get our house in order. And so she's been in nesting mode, organizing the house. And this actually happened the last time, right before she gave birth. And so she joked that the Lord is really teaching her patience and to trust in Him, not her surroundings or circumstances. So our house has been destroyed. But in that moment, I'm thinking natural thoughts. I'm not thinking, how is God going to be glorified in this situation? (laughs) I'm not thinking those things. I'm thinking natural thoughts. I'm thinking human thoughts, physical thoughts of one more thing to do, one more thing on the list, work effort. But it turns out that through this process, that that it was something that glorified God. It was something that edified, I believe, the church. I, I put it out on Facebook, some of this problem, and so many friends and members of the church came, and I had people showing up ready to help tear up the floor 
Someone from our new members class, not even a member here, three or four days in a row right after they got off work came over and spent hours helping me. As I'm working on spiritual stuff, I'm able to come home and, and there was one day where I couldn't get out of the office to come help. I got, I got pulled into a meeting and, and they're there at my house working, you know. And what a glorifying message of what the body does. The church body coming around because it's not just in the good times that you have family, it's also in bad times. And that's what a church family is for. And so there was another, there was another member of the church that just so happened, right, to buy the perfect tool that we needed for the job. I don't know if you've ever tried to tear up tile before, but we had a chisel and a hammer. Better than that, we had two chisels and two hammers. That's, that's what we were doing. But someone from the church had a very expensive power jackhammer tool that they just got like three days before. And, and so, I mean, there was this huge effort. Others, others called and said, hey, I, can't, I don't know how to do that work, but what I can do is make you a meal. Others said, hey, I can't do that, but I can clean and I can help dust. And so there was all these ways how God was glorified in the midst of this. So whether you eat drink, or whatever you do, fixing tile, right? You do it all for the glory of God. And so in our scripture this morning, I want us to look at the last couple of chapters in John, because the same way how we tend to think in natural terms is how the disciples and many others that Jesus was working with and talking with, that's how they often thought as well. In John 2.19, We'll see the first examples of this, but we're going to look at four different examples of how people live spiritually blind. They're blinded to spiritual things. Their first thought is not spiritual, it's physical, natural. The same as mine was at 4, 3 a.m. last morning. So John chapter 2, beginning in verse 19. So the Jews said to him, what signs do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will rise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you are going to raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. So Jesus here is speaking of something spiritual, and everyone around him says, It's taken 46 years to build this, and you're going to destroy it and build it in three days? They, they missed the whole spiritual aspect. The rest of the verse says, when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remember what he said. But we know that Jesus told them after three days he would rise. He would be put to death and he would rise. And it wasn't until after it happened that they realized it. And they were with Jesus for three years. And so even the disciples were spiritually blind to some things. When we look in John chapter 3, the very next chapter, Jesus speaking to Nicodemus. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Listen to what he's saying. He cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Now, when we hear that as spiritual people, we're thinking, why would anyone ask that question? But he was serious. He's talking to Jesus, trying to figure out what he was talking about. But Jesus is talking spiritual. Nicodemus is trying to understand spiritual things, and he can't do it. He can't 
take a spiritual thing and interpret it because he doesn't have a spiritual filter. He doesn't have a capacity in himself to understand spiritual things. And that's how all of us once were. Then we go to John 4. Jesus speaking with the woman at the well. John 4, look in verse 10. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God... And who it was saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So Jesus is here talking to this woman saying, living water is what you need. And if you have it, you'll never thirst again. And the woman said to him, but you don't have anything to draw the water with. Spiritual conversation Jesus is trying to have. This woman can't understand it's spiritual. She's thinking physical. How are you going to get living water? nevertheless, water that if you drink it once, you never, never thirst again. She's asking, where are you going to draw it from? And how, how are you going to draw it? You don't even have a bucket. I want to briefly refresh our memory about what's happening in this story. In John 4, we see that because of Jesus' love for all people, He comes to this woman. He breaks all the rules. He goes to a woman, a Samaritan woman, and shares with her about the gift of God. And I want us to see, and I hope we saw last week, that because Jesus loved her, because Jesus cared for her, one of the first things He starts a conversation with is about her sin. And in our culture, we don't talk about sin. If you talk about sin, you're being judgmental, right? If you talk about sin in someone's life, you're not loving them. But Jesus, I think we all can agree, loved people greatly. He cared for them. And he cared so much that he talked about her sin. He brought it up. He said, call your husband. She said, I don't have a husband. He said, you're right. The man you're with now is not your husband, and neither are the ones that have been before. You've had all these other ones. And so he was addressing the situation. He was addressing that because why does she need a Savior unless she thinks she's broken? This is for all of us. I don't need a Savior unless I think I need to be saved from something. And so Jesus loved her enough to talk with her. And this is why it's so important that we as brothers and sisters in the church have one another. Let's pick up in verse 25 here in John chapter 4. Verse 25 of John chapter 4. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. He is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. So Jesus is just now declaring He is the Messiah. Verse 27. Just then the disciples came back. They marveled He was talking to a woman. But no one said, What do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar, went away into town, and said to the people, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to Him. So John shares with us how this woman left her water jar. The very reason she was there was to gather water. She had a conversation with Jesus, and He said, I can give you living water. Spiritual conversation. She became a believer, a follower in Jesus Christ. She was made new, born again. She left the water jar. The whole reason she came, because she had living water. She ran to the town to tell the town about Christ. Verse 31. So that's, that's the event that has taken place. Here in verse 31 is a conversation sandwiched between the event. 
All right, so Jesus talked with this woman. She became a follower of Christ. She ran to the town to tell the town about Jesus. And then verse 31, it says, Meanwhile, the disciples were urging Jesus, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Another example of spiritual blindness. Jesus is saying, listen, I have food that you don't know about. And they ask what? Has someone brought Jesus a, a, a snack? I mean, did he pack a lunch when we weren't looking? Or did he eat something? We've been around him the whole time. Where's his food? They're looking in the physical, and Jesus is speaking about fear of, uh, spiritual. This leads to point number one that I want us to make sure we understand. Humanity, by nature, is spiritually blind. Humanity by nature, is spiritually blind. And I want to share, and I want to spend some time on this, because it's so vitally important for all of us to understand. As Christians, it's important for me to understand as a Christian and as a pastor. Because if we understand that the work of the Holy Spirit must illuminate someone's heart and mind, if we understand that, it's going to change how we interact with them. If we don't remember that people are spiritually blind, we can easily get frustrated at them. We can easily lose our patience with them. We can get angry at them. We can get bitter at them. Because as we grow, church, in the Bible, listen, we're, we're reading God's Word and we're learning principles. We're learning things God is teaching us about ourselves. We're learning things God is teaching us about this world and about others, about sin, about holiness. So, because of God's Word, because of our study of the truth, we can know, hey, this gives life. And then we can know, hey, if we do this, it brings about death. This brings joy. This brings cursings. This brings good relationships. This brings bad relationships. So we're growing in all these things. So we have a conversation with somebody, and we've been praying and praying and praying for a conversation we're going to have with someone. And we have that conversation. And what happens? right? I mean, have you had that? Right over their head. I mean, and you just laid it out so clearly what the problem is in their marriage. Or you laid it out so clearly the gospel. Or you laid something out so clearly and you've been praying about it. And it's like they didn't even hear a word you were saying. And then we can easily become frustrated. We can easily say, why don't you get it? Are you blind? Yes. That's exactly the truth. Yes, they're blind. And we must understand that. They don't have a capacity to understand spiritual things. And so when we understand that, we approach situations differently. We don't let their blindness influence our actions and our responses to their blindness. That's, that's what it means to be a follower of Christ. Scripture says we used to live in darkness. This is also us. Many times we can live in spiritual darkness as well. We still have the capacity to enter into sin. Just because we're a believer doesn't mean we are made perfect now. This is why God gave us the church. If we were perfect and we didn't need others and we still weren't blind in many areas, we don't need each other. We don't need most of the New Testament if we're not spiritually blind anymore. But Scripture says we are, and we enter into those things, and we do have problems, 
and I need you and you and you and you in my life, and we need each other in our lives, because the Holy Spirit, through the Word of God, is still teaching us things. And many times He uses you. Many times He uses His Word. But He's always doing things according to His Word. So we should not have the mindset, because we're Christians, that we have the corner of the market on all things spiritual. Because when we have the corner of the market on all things spiritual, and we're never able to be wrong, you have just reached the pinnacle of the Christian faith. And Scripture says, you're never going to do that until you reach eternity with Him. I mean, so Paul says, if I boast in anything, I boast in the Lord, not my brokenness. So I'm boasting in Him, not me. I've not yet arrived. We see Paul at the end of his life, where he says, I'm still pursuing to be like Christ. I mean, so that is the action. When we think we're way up here and everybody else is way down here, it's called pride. That's what it's called. And many times, I have it in my life. And I don't think I do. That's the problem with pride, right? But you may see it, and my wife may see it, and that's why I need you to talk with me about it. And that's why you need us to talk with you about it, and your spouse to talk with you about it. You ever notice how many sins you see when you get married and your spouse that you didn't see before? Right? Martin Luther said the greatest thing, because before he wasn't allowed to be married, when he broke away from the Catholic Church, he ended up getting married. It was this huge, big ordeal. But he said that the single greatest sanctification factor in his life has been marriage. He has a, some quotes on that. It's really interesting, and it's so true. Because we enter into this, and, and now they really see us for who we are. Here's a good litmus test for all of us. When was the last time you realized you were dead wrong. And you went to that individual and you said, listen, I'm sorry. I, please forgive me. I have failed. I'm wrong. When was the last time you did that? Has it been weeks, months? Can you not remember the last time? Because as Christians, listen, it should be happening all the time. And if it's not, here's a couple of things that could be happening. If it's not happening in my life, number one, nobody's talking with me about it. Might be true. Number two, they could be talking with me about it, but I'm so prideful that I just think that, man, those people are way off base, right? That could be happening. Or number three, I'm just so prideful that I don't even think anybody needs to talk with me about it. I could be blinded, and many times we're all blinded. This is why God gave us the church. I want us to think, rarely does God ever give us Scripture that we're good at doing. I want you to think about this. All the commands of Scripture are things we typically don't do well. Right? He never says, love yourself more. He says, love others more. He doesn't say, hey, you need to work on loving money a little bit more. Or he doesn't say, hey, you need to love your stuff a little bit more than you do. I've noticed in your life, you, you really don't cherish your possessions as much as you should. You should, you should cherish those a little more. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, hey, you should be quick to speak. I'm really good at that one. Why didn't he tell me to do that? No, he says, you should be slow to speak, quick to listen. So all these commands, scriptures, 
God is giving us are because we're not good at these things to begin with, right? That's, that's the whole purpose. And then to follow that up, he commands us to be part of a church, in a body, in relationships with each other, so that we try to live these things out, and when we don't, we have not just one person, like our spouse, but we have a hundred other people to come alongside of us and say, hey, time out, I, I think the way you said that, it was, it was really off base. Or what you just did, or how you just spoke, or that action, I mean, they can come alongside of you because they love you. They can come alongside of you. That's what this whole thing of the church is. And so I reference John 1 and John 2 and John 3 and John 4 unless the Spirit is illuminating. We need to understand we were completely blind to all things spiritual. Now we've been given the Spirit, but we still have the flesh. We still have the flesh. Unless you think you're made perfect, then you no longer have the flesh. But there's still a struggle there that we have in our life, and we need one another. This is why the church says, when a brother enters into sin, not if they ever do. In 1 John, it talks about that. All throughout Scripture, it talks about when we enter into sin, to come alongside the other brother. We need to come alongside one another. Encourage us. This is why we talk about joining and getting involved. Church is not a Sunday morning only thing. When you were dating your spouse, there was a lot of things you didn't see about them, right? Until you got married. And then there's a lot of things that you see to them and they see about you. Many times, we just date the church and we show up and we go out on a date on Sunday morning and we don't know anything about each other. We're supposed to be married and really see what's going on in each other's lives. So this is why we encourage you to get involved in the church. Come to the potluck after church. Get involved. We're all really good at hiding things from each other. Just like you hid things from your spouse when you were dating, right? Just like they did to you. We're supposed to be married so we can't hide these things. Join a connect group. Pray with others. Go through discipleship. That's what it means. So humanity by nature is spiritually blind. Let's look again in verse 31. Meanwhile, chapter 4, verse 31. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Now, we know from Scripture that Jesus was both fully man and fully God. And in this Scripture, we see him referencing his divine, eternal nature. Jesus did not need food. Typically, we need food to work. And we work so that we can eat and live, right? There's this circle. Jesus is saying, my food is my work. And my work is my food. And I can do either one of those things, and they will sustain and nourish me. But he says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. So God the Father sent Jesus Christ. What was the will of God? Well, we find the will of God in John chapter 6. This will be on the screen. John 6 verses 39 through 40. This is the will of him who sent me. Also in John 
John's about to get to what that will is. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now it's verses like this why we believe that someone who's truly saved cannot lose their salvation. Because what is Jesus saying? He's saying, it's the will of God that I, Jesus, will lose nothing of those who have been given to me. Those who are saved, those who have been given eternal life, I will not lose. Now, is it a responsibility of Jesus if he's only keeping those who keep themselves in the faith? If, if someone can come in the faith, out of the faith, in the faith, out of the faith, does Jesus have any responsibility at all? What is he actually doing? Nothing. But Jesus is saying, it's my responsibility, the will of God, that I will lose none the Father has given to me. That's a responsibility. It's no responsibility to only keep those who keep themselves. That's false responsibility. Jesus is saying, that is the will of God, and I will accomplish this will. So what was this work of Jesus that he was doing? Because he says that's the will of God, but also to accomplish the work. We see this also in John. John chapter 12, verse 49 says this, For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me. He himself has given me a commandment. So here's a commandment that Jesus was given by God the Father. What to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. So Jesus has given the commandment eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Point number two this morning, the work of Jesus is to grant eternal life. That was his purpose. That is his purpose. He's still accomplishing that purpose today. The will of God to keep those he has been given eternal life to. Jesus' work was granting eternal life. And that was done through his death, burial, resurrection. So he's granting in verse 34 of John 4, Jesus said to them, My food is to do the work or the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Jesus is saying, listen, I don't need food. I am the food. I am living water. I am the bread of life. I am living bread. That's what it says in John 6.41. I am the bread that came down from heaven in the Old Testament. Then he says, I am the bread. Verse 50, I am the living bread. Jesus does not need anything from any of us. He is self-sufficient. John 1, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Let's turn back to John chapter 4, verse 35. John 4, verse 35. Jesus goes on, and this can get confusing until we understand what it is he's speaking about. Verse 35, do not say there are four months, then come the harvest. Jesus is speaking to them here about natural, physical life, trying to help them understand. Four months was the time typically from planting to harvest. Planting to harvest. He said, do not say 
Four months is how long it has to take. And he's speaking about spiritual things. There does not have to be four months. There's this blindness we read about earlier that he was trying to cut through. Jesus was teaching them that regarding spiritual things, planting and harvesting can happen simultaneously. He says, look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see the fields are white for harvest. So remember, this conversation, Jesus went to this woman, he talked about her sin, he gave, he talked about eternal life with her, himself as the Messiah. She believed, and then what did she, she do? Where did she go? The town. She went off to the town. Meanwhile, Jesus is having this conversation with the disciples, and he's saying, listen, four months is how long it typically takes to plant and then to reap a harvest, but I tell you, don't believe in four months. It's not always four months. And then he says, look, lift up your eyes and see the fields. You can imagine that the town coming out to receive salvation was happening at this time. And it happened instantaneously. Jesus planted the seed. The seed gave growth. There was new birth. This woman became a Christian. Right then and there, she ran to the town, told the town, planting seed in the town. And then they came out to Jesus. Let's look in verse 36. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. So you have a sower and you have a reaper. Typically, these people didn't meet. They didn't rejoice together because there was four months in between. And Jesus is saying, listen, the conversation I just had with this woman and the whole foundation this conversation was built on from the Old Testament and the prophets, both the reaper and the sower are going to rejoice together because of the harvest that we're about to get. Verse 37, Jesus quotes the Old Testament, Amos 9.13. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. Amos 9.13 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper, and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. So what that means is that there would be so much plowing and planting and harvesting that they're almost overtaking each other. There, has, there doesn't have to be an overlap of time. That you would need so many workers, and so many workers would be doing the work that typically you'd have to wait a long time for. And Jesus was saying, that just happened and we're about to enter into this. The exciting thing is in Amos 9, that's talking about a future coming kingdom where the ground was going to be so plentiful, the earth was going to be so abundant, that it was going to be like the Garden of Eden again. And Jesus was quoting that, saying, that had now arrived. The fields were white for harvest. Jesus was speaking about the inauguration of the kingdom of God. He's referencing, that's what Amos 9 was referencing, and Jesus was saying, now is when it's happening. Now is when it's happening. The kingdom had arrived. Verse 38, I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have now entered into their labor. The Samaritan woman and Jesus had done labor. But now this whole town was coming out and they were going to be meeting together with Jesus and the disciples and all receiving Christ. Let's keep looking. Verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in Jesus 
because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So there was, after she became a Christian, there was seed being planted and there was already harvest. And they come, verse 40. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And Jesus stayed there two days. Many more believed because of the word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we ourselves have heard, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. So it was no longer, in our context today, the priest's faith, or your parents' faith, or the pastor's faith, or a friend's faith. It was their faith. Have you heard for yourselves the good news and believed and trusted in Jesus Christ yourself? That's a question for you to ask this morning. They said, we have heard for ourselves and we know. We know. That's what it means to be a follower of Christ. I know what God has done for me. And I'm trusting in that. Regardless of what may happen or not happen in this life, my life is built on Jesus Christ as my foundation. Some practical applications for us. Verse 38, I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. Others have labored and you are entering into their labor. So many times I hear in evangelism, people say, well, I'm just a planter. I'm just a waterer. I'm not a harvester. And Jesus is saying, we are all entering into the work of Jesus Christ. His finished work on the cross. We are all called to plant, to water, and to harvest. This Samaritan woman, listen, think of her life. She's unclean in that time. She was considered unclean. She was a woman, which in that culture was looked down upon. She had been together with five different men in the past, sleeping with a man right now. Her life was in shambles. Jesus came, offered her salvation. She became a follower of Christ and immediately went. And what happened? There was a revival in the town about her testimony of the Lord. How God used this broken, sinful woman because of the Holy Spirit working inside of her. If He can use her and all the other mess up people in the Bible, He wants to use you. He wants to use me. We don't have an excuse. We don't have an excuse saying, well, I'm not good enough. Well, my past. Listen, God wants to use you and your past. And many times... That's why you even have your past. And so you need to use it for His glory. You need to use it in ways to be redemptive. She went from being completely spiritually blind to being part of a spiritual harvest that changed eternities. So don't underestimate what God can do through you. Secondly, we need to be praying and pleading for the Holy Spirit to work in the lives of others. Our family members, our friends, our neighbors, our co-workers, those who have not yet come to Christ, we need to be praying for the Holy Spirit to work in their lives. This is what we saw with Nicodemus. This is what we saw all through John. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24 will be on the screens here, but listen to what it says and think about it in the context of evangelism. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to everyone, able to teach patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness, that God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. 
I want to read that again. That God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. They don't have a knowledge of the truth unless they have repentance. And they don't have repentance unless who grants it? That's what the Scripture just said. God has to grant it. So we need to be in prayer that the Holy Spirit work and illuminate lives. We have to use God's Word because it's God's Word how He says He illuminates lives. So we need to be in prayer for the Holy Spirit to be active and moving. Third, we need to remember what God's Word teaches us about spiritual blindness. The spiritual blindness of those in our lives, but also of ourselves. We need to remember Christ did not become frustrated at you. He didn't become upset at you because you didn't get it. Why? Because He knew you couldn't. You didn't have a capacity. He's not frustrated at us when we don't understand something spiritual because many times we can't. That's why He's given us the church. But before we were a believer, He was still pursuing us and loving us. And so in our life, we need to exhibit the same type of compassion towards others, the same type of patience that God has exhibited towards us. We were blind, but now we can see because of the Holy Spirit in our life. We need to do the same to others in our lives, have compassion and come alongside of them because they don't see it. Listen, when you meet someone who professes Christ, yet they don't have patience, they don't have kindness, they don't have mercy or grace or love towards others, it's probably because they themselves don't understand how broken they are. When they don't exhibit what God has exhibited to them, the patience with them, and they think they're up here, it's probably because they don't understand how much God has done and is doing for them. So they're either, one, spiritually blind still, Or two, they dimly see. They dimly see. And rather than being upset at them, rather than being bitter at this person who's saying they're a Christian, and maybe they are, but rather than being upset that they don't see it, you should have mercy and compassion on them. That they have yet to see these things in their own life that are so clear to you. That's a mercy and a grace of God. If you can see somebody else's issues, that's a mercy and a grace of God because you didn't naturally see spiritual things. And neither did I. And so that's something I need to be reminded of. Rather than getting upset that they don't see something I see so clearly, I should praise God that I have the eyes, that I even have the eyes to see that. That is a glory and a mercy of God that He has given us. Ephesians 2, 3. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of God's wrath. Let that sit on us this morning. Colossians 1.21 Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. That was me. That was you. 1 John 4.10 This is love, not that we loved God, we've already clearly seen we didn't, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. What great patience God showed with us when He came alongside of us and saved us. 
how incredible it is through the blood of Jesus Christ that we go from being spiritually blind, unable to see anything spiritual, to now we can actually be adopted sons and daughters into God's family. Our eternities changed. Now we can be part of a harvest to where we come along others and invite them into a relationship with Christ. What an incredible gift it is that God has given us. Church, I, I pray that you are encouraged. We need to see that the fields truly are ready for harvest. May God richly use this for his honor and his glory. Would you pray with me this morning? God, help us to remember how blind humanity is. They don't see it. All the things going on right now with abortion and all the inhumanities of the world, we can easily think, how can people be silent? How can they not understand these things? How can they not be frustrated? How come it doesn't weigh on their heart the same way it weighs on our hearts? There's so many things we can be frustrated at. And rather than being frustrated, God, help us realize we have been given eyes to see spiritual things. And the rest of the world who have not trusted in Christ, they don't see these things yet. And rather than us being frustrated or upset, they don't see God, help us to give you praise, honor, and glory that we can see those things. It is a gift and provision and grace of you. God, help us to have patience with those in our lives. God, I pray that we may see that we're entering into your finished work on the cross regarding evangelism. God, may we be passionate in planting seeds, watering seeds, but also bringing forth a harvest. God, we thank you. You can use broken people. God, we thank you that this woman at the well, she didn't have to clean up her life first. We don't have any record of her cleaning up her life. God, we know true believers, when we become believers, we do clean up our life because we love you. But we don't get saved because we cleaned up our life. God, we clean up our life because we're saved. We thank you for the grace you've given us God, may we decrease and may you increase as we've learned in your word. God, we thank you for this morning and the provision of your word. Illuminate our hearts and minds on a continual basis. We need that. We thank you for allowing us to see. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.